So, Frank, did you watch any of the royal wedding yesterday? I watched a grand total of about zero. Wow. Oh, snap. Yeah, I had no interest in that, which is weird because I watched the show Suits, and I like her, but you're I the just one thought... Who likes, you're the one who watches Suits. I watch we Suits. We found somebody I who watches watch suits. suits. And I liked it, but I had no... I got married, so whoop de frickin' do. I saw none of it. Zero. You're not Except interested the, in the, the pageantry and the theatricality of the event? Because no. it's, it's all beautifully staged. I'm and, sure it is, but the hats are so stupid that I cannot look at it. <laughs> Jen, did you watch any? I did, sort of just because I unfortunately have a habit of keeping MSNBC on on a constant That's where I saw freaking it. loop. <laughs> and so it. it's on. <laughs> and so I woke up to the preachings, the beautiful, I thought, yeah. preachings of the Chicago preacher. Yeah. Because it was at like, what, six in the morning or something, our time. Well, I thought it was pretty spectacular. I thought it was pretty well done. There are so many different types of watchers of this kind of thing. There are people who watch and they're moved and they love it. And then there are like the sort of cynical watchers who watch because it's funny, like the hats just look dumb. Right. I mean, Frank. They, just, they do really me. look ridiculous. <laughs> or you just tune it out completely. But what I did notice, this was pointed out to me by my boyfriend, Bill Zamey, name dropper, that when both of them were taking their vows, the cameraman knew exactly how to get them. And when Meghan Markle said, I do, her mother was like in shock. Right so, over and so, her right, shoulder. Right over her shoulder. Yeah. So whoever like planned the, the, the director of the event, it's just incredibly spot on. So yeah, I, that they did a, I was... They did a great job. It was by. really, really pretty exciting, Frank. And um, I'll watch the next one. Okay. <laughs> Well, it's another episode of Booth One, where we celebrate the art of lively conversation about the performing arts and popular culture. Gary Zabinski here alongside my co-host, Frank Taranjo. Today, we have a distinctive guest in the studio. You've heard her voice mm-hmm. already, the outstanding actress Jennifer Engstrom. Welcome to the booth, oh, Jen. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. It's so nice, Frank, to have a female voice on the podcast. It is. We, we haven't had one in a while, and it just... Oh, yeah. Sparks the whole thing up. It does. Light up the room, as she always does. The computer's on fire. (laughs) Uh, Jennifer is a a Red Orchid Ensemble member, as was our last guest, Brett Nevue. That's right. Where she has appeared in over a dozen productions. In addition, she has played the Angel of America in David Cromer's production of Angels in America. That was in Kansas City, wasn't it? That was in Kansas City. Yeah, Yeah. that was an incredible experience, of course. We did both parts with about three and a half weeks rehearsal. Oh, wow. So the very, I mean... It's the, about three and a half weeks long. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Seven hours of show. We did more first parts than we did second parts. And so, w- w- as the angel was problematic because the epistle is in the second act, the big, right. she breaks through the ceiling and delivers this epistle. And I did it on a 15-foot rolling ladder <laughs> on about a probably five foot level on a stage. So I was towering. I wasn't literally flying, but I was soaring sort of through space on a rolling ladder moved by a crew person with wings that inhibited my use of my hands. So it was harrowing, to be honest. It was. And and also delivering this sort of otherworldly text Kushner, actually. I met Tony Kushner in this experience. He came, he didn't see the show because apparently at that point he said he didn't, he does not like seeing versions of the show, even though they're doing it now in New York. But it is too bad because I think that Cromer, David Cromer, loved this show and really pulled out things that I think Kushner intended when he wrote it originally in that you see the strings, you know, it's you, it's meant to be a play and it's meant to be received as a play. And so you see the sort of machinations and workings. But anyway, the first thing that Tony Kushner said to me was, and he wrote it in my book because I brought my script so that he would sign it. And he signed, sorry, the epistle is so hard. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Truly with the technology and with the text, it was one of those where I think one night I felt delivered and like it was free and that it was just pure focus. You, you grew up, Jen, in Iowa, right? I did. In I did. A, a little town called Huxley? Well, it's actually out even outside of Huxley called Cambridge. <laughs> it's Fall Farm. It's a suburb of Huxley. It's a suburb it's of Huxley. It's lesser Huxley. It's yeah. like, right, right. It's, it's a little south of Huxley called Cambridge is technically, it's all rural farm land. Yeah. So it's yeah. been in my family for over 150 years. Wow. Uh, my grandmother lives on 
the farm in the farmhouse where she was raised by her grandmother. She still lives there. She still lives wow. there. Yeah, she said, I will be carried out feet first, <laughs> Jennifer. She says, I am not leaving this house until you carry me out feet first. I'm like, Grandma, don't say that. But um, uh, So how does one get from Huxley, Iowa, to the big city? Well. Besides I-80 to 55. Yeah, that's exactly right. Right, to 350. Yeah. And then yeah. Right. Well, the big city at the time for me was Glen Ellen, Illinois. And uh-huh. I, when I was 18... I knew that I wanted to perform in some way, but I was, at the time, too shy and tentative and scared and anxious and depressed and weirded out by other people. 18-year-old stuff. 18-year-old <laughs> stuff, but it prohibited me from really trying to be in plays. So somehow I gravitated towards doing speech and forensics, which was like a solo event. So that's good because I was a solo type of person. I didn't want to be, you know, auditioning for things was very overwhelming and scary. So I became interested in doing speech events as a way of starting out the exploration of emotional accessibility. So you hadn't really done anything in high school. No. Oh, wow. I hadn't, although I did do a play outside of high school. I did much ado about nothing, you know, when you haven't done a play before, you just oh, decide not. to audition yeah. and yeah. you get the part of Beatrice and much ado about nothing at the Genesius <laughs> Theater Guild in Rock oh, Island, they Illinois. Do good stuff. And they do, right? Yeah. So I was acting, I was like 18, 17 probably, and I'm performing with these like 20 year old people. And so it was very exciting. But somehow that was okay, but I couldn't do it at school. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like auditioning mm-hmm. at school felt differently because they've known all these kids knew me for so long and I was just sort of the quiet outcast. You know what I mean? I was so like, shy what, around them, but not around adults who did community theater. So, so that was what, what I did. What was in Glen Ellen, Illinois? There was a college called the College of DuPage. Aha. It comes yes. full bing, circle. Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> full disclosure, Jen's Frank, one of my you, former students. You were a teacher. Yes, I was. mentor, I was. philosophy shaper. I mean, I can't say enough about those early days. I was coming from just the chaos of, of life as an adolescent and with not a lot of direction. I wasn't necessarily great at making goals and lining them up and hitting them. So it was very fortuitous in that I landed in the path of people. How did you pick CID? Well, I had gone to a speech camp when I was still in high school. Bradley uh-huh. University uh-huh. had a forensics camp. In Peoria, Illinois. In Peoria, Illinois. And here's still a do. hot tip. They had some really cute boys that were uh-huh. counselors, uh-huh. okay? I'm not naming any names, but they were cute boys. And also like really talented performers. And they encouraged my being a performer. And I heard things about myself that I wasn't aware of, about my voice and about my ability to excavate certain emotions and tell a story. And so that's when truly the the bug landed. And then I, I performed or I, I took those events to uh, tournaments when I was in high school and won, I think, the state championship in Iowa. But this is really not bragging, because I think it was like one of like three people, honestly. Like <laughs> Iowa, Iowa's all about debate. Uh, Iowans are serious right. about debate. They right. could care less sure. about your fruity little acting. Even LD debate is considered arty. They are serious. That's the one-on-one debate. Yeah, Lincoln-Douglas yeah. debate. Like, And I tried that once, and I just walked away crying. Like, <laughs> I was, it was so terrible. Like, I know you should win. That's a waste of your talent. Yeah, right. Frank, you eventually steered Jennifer into an acting focus. Did you direct her in a couple well, of shows one of the nice uh, things at I College did, of DuPage? One of the nice things about College of DuPage is the theater and the speech department, for the most part, are relatively well-coordinated. I coached speech and obviously coached Jen in speech, but then I also directed one or two shows a year. So if I had somebody in speech who I thought would be good, like, hey, come on downstairs, try out for the play, and vice versa. When I would do a play, I always like to do the fall play and any of the good people, and I would pluck out and then put them on the speech team. Jen did Whose Life Is It Anyway for me, where she had to lay stock, stock still for two hours, couldn't even scratch her nose. I know. (laughs) I did. I I did that, didn't I? You did. Yes, crazy. you did. And you were wonderful. She was absolutely wonderful. Oh. It was the female version. I'm not sure how different it is, but I think Mary Tyler Moore or someone That's had right. done it on Broadway as a revival. So it was kind of like the rage then to put women in. I'm yeah. like, oh, I've got a woman. Who I worked can do as it. a production assistant on the original oh, production did. with Tom Conti, uh-huh. and I frequently during rehearsal would get to lie in the bed and pretend to be him because he was off on a 
press day or had some interviews or something. So I'd lie there and read the lines while the nurses changed me and turned me over and did all kinds of stuff. (laughs) It was really fun. I mean, I was 20 years old and it was one of the great experiences uh, ever. She also then did speech for us and was very successful. And it was really kind of a a really great time because you were on the team, Marisol Nichols, who has gone on to do a lot of different things. A lot of different things. She's currently in River. Day, Riverdale. Riverdale playing Veronica's mother. Is that a television show? That is a television yeah. show based on the Archie comics. Huge cult uh, yes. hit, if it's not already yeah, it's huge big, in the ratings. I mean, I know so many it's people are obsessed with that show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Barbara Wengard, who is in New York, just recently did Laura in uh, Glass Menagerie. They were on the team yeah. the same time you yeah. were, so that was kind yeah. of a hotbed of talent we had back Incredible. then. And we won nationals. <laughs> yes, we did. Because, you know, how could you not? Jennifer, yeah, we really you have quite a history of, well, you've understudied a number of roles around Chicago as well. And I, I will have. tell you that we happened to be in the audience at Writers Theatre the day you went on with, well, from what I understand, virtually zero rehearsal as Blanche Dubois in David Cromer's uh, yes. Streetcar Named Desire. Now, yes, yes, yes. I can't believe you saw that. That's we so saw that incredible. performance. It was on a Sunday, yep. I think. Yep. Yes. I went on twice. I did have rehearsal because writers wouldn't put anyone on, especially in a role like that, without rehearsal I but I rehearsed it yeah Yeah, we'd had understudy rehearsals at that point I was in the show as well I played Eunice yes when Blanche was on but I had not until that day the day I knew I was going on I had not done any of the costume changes so we I had no costume work and Blanche is a notorious clothes horse it's Mm -hmm. all about the clothing and the beautiful dresses and of course at that era the garters and the girdles and everything and the, you know, and all of that. So I hadn't, I, I didn't have my own costume track. So we had to figure that out the day of. Could and you wear her costumes? No, she was oh. a little bit more petite than I. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so they put me in like big Blanche outfits. So, uh, no, I'm not that bad. <laughs> but so, they had to find stuff for me. But you. they had to find stuff for me. Yeah. And they had been doing that. They had been calling sort of a collection. Just but in then case. that day, it was like, okay, we got to do it. And everything went well, except for this would have been after the poker scene when all mayhem breaks loose and Blanche witnesses Stanley smack Stella. And so she takes Stella upstairs. And we actually had stairs on the set that went up to a little so-called living space, which is where the Hubbles lived, because I know that, because I was up there most of the time as Eunice. Hubble. The Hubble, yeah, in my hovel. Um, the Hubble Hubble. Okay. But so the, the, the one memory I have of that performance was walking up the stairs, and the girdle they had given me was too big, uh, shockingly, and it started to literally just, like, fall off of my body. And so, like, the, 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 the and it was attached to the stockings, of course, and so everything is just, like, sagging down. I have, like, elephant knees, but I'm going up the stairs, so I was like... <laughs> so it all, it all prevailed. It all somehow worked. I but. thought it was very symbolic of Blanche's sort of deterioration as the show <laughs> goes on. See? She gets to be less glamorous. And that's it. Crazier and crazier as she climbs the stairs. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you were marvelous. We were astounded that this was your first performance and that you, I don't think you ever called for a line. Oh, no, no. Not that I recall. The amazing thing was the way that the play was set up as. As Eunice, I was literally on the set the whole time, just hidden upstairs. So, so I could listen. To it for weeks. I could yeah. listen to those beautiful speeches over and over and over again. And we had rehearsed understudy rehearsals twice a week. Um, because this was later in the run that I went on. It wasn't yep. right away. Not like the Steppenwolf one, which we will talk about next, probably. <laughs> and also have the having the experience of watching David Cromer direct Blanche, specifically to Natasha Lowe, the great Natasha Lowe, uh, who played Blanche and won a Jeff Award for it. And she's a dear friend of mine and just a lovely human being and so incredibly talented. So I, 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 I had the chance to listen to him talk about Blanche to her. And it was a very personal experience for him as well. I think David is a really great interpreter of Williams, just sort of cuts through a lot of the lyricism and poetry and even though it's beautiful to just really make it clear yeah and it was it was really helpful obviously in my then 
taking it on. Sure. Um, we mentioned David Cromer uh, on the last episode. We uh, did. The fact that he is nominated for a Tony, a Tony Award this year Award. for yeah. directing the band's visit on yep. Broadway. Yeah. Which I will say again, I loved. Now, you mentioned Steppenwolf. You were understudying Amy Morton in a play called Here, Here. Mm H-I-R, H-I-R, which we saw as well. Yeah. Something happened during previews or final dress or something like that to Amy. Amy Morton is like a Chicago goddess, and she's so great. She's so smart. She's so... Just cool and down to earth, and I've had the luxury of understudying her now three times. My first job in the city was understudying Amy Morton in the cryptogram, David Mamet's the cryptogram at Steppenwolf, and then when we did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, I also understudied her then, and never went on, and she's notorious for not ever missing shows. She does not miss shows. So then I was hired to understudy her for here with the agreement that I would be going on a couple times, but no one really knew when because, you know, she's shooting Chicago PD. So I had to be ready at some point, but we never knew when. And this, the, the script, it's Taylor Mack, who goes by Judy, wrote this play that is incredibly verbose. It's beautiful language, but it is really tight language. And it's not just going to, you, you, you need to study it. You need to study it to get the words down. So it was the last, one of the last final dresses. Lights were up. It was just, they, you were just sort of working through blocking stuff. And the, the show, the stage was just littered with stuff. Like it was in, like a... It was you a know, big messy house. It was a big, with huge, messy house with stuff, stuff every, and stuff kept coming in, and just, yeah. just, just yeah. stuff everywhere yeah. because Lights. the character has just decided to give up on taking um, care of the house. Yeah. So the actual set is messy. The, yes. No. Okay. The set is mess. I mean, it's like an obstacle course. And Amy, I'm watching from the house, and Amy was doing some blocking move, and I saw her just boom go down, <gasps> twisted her ankle, went down. Oh. Laura Glenn, the stage manager from the heavens she came down and put her hand on my chest and she said oh all right you must be ready because apparently my heart was not beating out of my chest and I was <laughs> I had for about a month before that I had said okay would do like three pages a day if I can get three pages a day by June 9th I would be ready that's the first preview well June 9th was when I went on <laughs> for the very first preview <laughs> perfect timing yeah so I did that show with the Chicago cast for the first time with them it was their first time and my first time. Wow. Yeah. Then she came back soon after that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She came back. I think I think she did the next show after that, but she did it in a boot. Yeah. We saw oh, her did. We saw yeah. her on opening do yeah. it in the boot. Yeah. She she wore the boot most for the rest of the show. Well, I thought at first it was a character choice. Yeah. Yeah. No. It, they never refer to it, and I thought, well, this is kind of interesting that she's uh-huh. also limping around in this, but then I, I learned it, later on that she right. had actually injured herself. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it, it totally works for the show. I mean, totally. it's like the place is a mess. I think it even would add a little bit more sympathy to that woman's character <laughs> she because she had a lot of. I think you. I think you're right. She probably tripped over her own her. crap. Exactly. Yeah. You know, sort of self-destructive in a way. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, those yeah. are great understudy stories. Harrowing. They are. They are. It is the hardest thing to do, but it is all on you. And I gotta say too, like both writers and Steppenwolf were great about you keep the blocking patterns as they have them but your interpretation of the character can be Mm. what you want it to be like I was never told like be like Amy here or be like Natasha at all I was totally Uh encouraged to be my own Blanche to be my own Paige in here and and that was great because then you then you have then you feel like you have a little ownership you hit you hit all the important beats for sure right but 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 there was never any sort of try to do an impression of of, you know amy morton or (laughs) natasha you know that would have been a disaster you could have done it in a boot and limped around yes i I probably i wish i could have because i think you should have mentioned because i feel like people maybe had a little bit more compassion for a very hard character very hard character hey frank i wanted to mention something uh you saw this production the Goodman Theater's five-and-a-half-hour stage adaptation of Roberto Bolaño's mammoth and, well, seemingly unstageable 2066. I did. Yeah, and you, and you enjoyed this, Oh, right? I loved it. I thought it was great. Well, it drew a stream of ardent fans in Chicago. Not a lot of people were able to see it because it had this limited run. And right. 
five and a half hours. Well, the show, which involves five distinct sets, 15 actors playing 80 characters. Is that <laughs> yes. about, that's uh, that's about, about right? I wasn't counting, but yeah. And an elaborate movie within the play. Yes, yes. All kinds of stuff. It made subsequent productions very difficult to remount. However, those uh, who were unable to make the trip can binge watch the entire thing online from a couch anywhere in the world in an unusual arrangement of filmed version of the production, which was adapted and directed by Bob Falls and Seth Bockley right here in Chicago, will be available free, unlimited streaming for at least two years. Oh, great. Now, is that the production I saw, or are they restaging it? It is the production you saw. The streaming arrangement is supported by, you know this guy, Roy Cockrum, the the, the Cockrum Foundation, created in 2015 by this former monk who was a one-time actor and stage manager who won the Powerball for $153 million. (laughs) In fact, he financed this production at the Goodman to the tune of, well, what I heard was high six, low seven figures. Wow. It wasn't that elaborate. There was just a lot of different sets, and they go to South America, and they, I mean, they're just all over the place. And it was very creatively staged. What I loved about it was in the small theater at Goodman, and we were in the front row. So... Kind of like my experience when we saw To Catch a Fish, I was kind of like in it. Not literally, but you feel like you're part of the action when you're right close like that in a really small space. I don't have any details on actually where you can stream it, but, you know, you're, you're computer savvy. You, you can find it. I should be able to Google it. Since they've announced it, I would assume it's going to start very yes. soon. Oh, great. Oh, I'm I'll excited. look for that. I have several yeah. friends that were in that. Really? So, yeah. Who are your favorite playwrights to perform, Jennifer? Do you have uh, certain writers whose work just sort of sits really well with you? I feel like Tennessee Williams yeah. does. I feel a kinship with ten- with the words and the women of Tennessee Williams. Yeah. Um, he writes great female roles. He does. They're, they're so fully fleshed out and unapologetically female. I love that. Oh, I'll be. I'm, I'm not really of the age yet to play some of the roles that I hope to yeah. play, but that the, the words, the, the, the sharpness of the language in that is, is so thrilling to me. I, I would just love at some point to play one of those women, though they've been played so well at this point. It's just sort of like fodder for ego, but they're just so beautiful. There's, there's this new playwright on the, on the horizon named Jen Silverman, who I cannot get enough of this playwright. She's, you're going to see a lot of her in the next. There's Writer's Theater is doing a production of hers, and Steppenwolf is doing a production of hers, and she's, I'm not sure how old she is, but she's, she's young and upcoming, and she's really, really different and interesting and exciting. We'll put some information about Jen Silverman up on our website when we do yeah, our, our yeah. notes on the show, yeah. and uh, people will be able to look her up and uh, see what's going on with her and her career. Yeah. You say she's doing something. Writers is doing a play of hers Writers this year. Writers is doing a play of hers called The Witch of Edmonton. Yeah, I think they're opening their season with that. They or are, like that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's just a, a beautiful play. Um, I actually auditioned for it and didn't get it, and yet here I am, <laughs> completely unbiased. Complete. I mean, I really do just love her and love the show. Get me Michael Halberstam on the phone. <laughs> and Michael, I love you too, but you let me down. No, I'm totally kidding. Because I'm doing a show in the fall at Red Orchid, and so it was just kind of shuffling, like, which would happen, and so we're doing, uh, we're opening our season with a show called Small Mouth Sounds mm. by Bess Wall. It takes place at a silent retreat, and it's a really great, interesting wow. show exploring Language, silence, redemption, help, Why? broken souls, all of it. Uh, directed by Shade Murray, who last year was, I think Chris Jones wrote that he directed the number one show in Chicago at Red Orchid, Evening at the Talk House. Saw it. So Shade is a uh, g- great friend yes. of mine and a great director. Of, great director. Of great yeah. director. Yeah, he does very good stuff in that space, yeah. given the limitations of that right, space, the, which right. are crazy. Right. But. You can feel like you're, again, like you're right in it. And so for some people, it might be a, a little jarring. But for me, and for people, once they sort of 
realize that it's that they're safe. It's not like we're going to come and snatch them or something. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, they might get splattered, but no, they probably will. get a little spit on. You might. Okay. We, you know, you might. Brett you talked about the play, we the did. boxing play I that he wrote, where some sweat week. would yeah. go oh, yeah. flying onto the audience. Yep. Right. Well, yeah. this is in the future, uh, but only a day in the future. It's tomorrow. We're going to a Red Orchid Theater's annual spring fundraiser at, yes. at the American Writers Museum. Mm-hmm. We're very excited about that. I'll give a full report on the next episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. But you're doing something, and this is something you have been doing for quite some time. You're the creator of a one-woman show called Excuse My Dust, a Dorothy Parker portfolio. Yes, it's a mouthful. Well, tell our <laughs> listeners a little bit about this show and Ms. Parker and how you came to create this wow. project. Dorothy Parker first kind of came onto my radar when I was about 22 or 23 years old at a house party, wasted, just drunk. I'm sober now, so just don't, that's worry. don't lot, worry about me, I think okay? that's how a lot of people discovered Dorothy <laughs> yeah, Parker. Yeah, right? It's kind of a good way. She would yeah, like that. Absolutely. She, Dorothy has given me many kisses from above. I do believe that. I, she might not say that, but I feel like she has. So I was at this house party. I was wasted, and I must have been thinking I was clever, and I met a friend of... I met, for the first time, somebody who has... Be, Become a long friend of mine, Stephen Walker, who was actually in the Timeline show, the To Catch a Fish. He yes. he take he took one look at me and was like, "You got to read Dorothy Parker," and I was like, "Hell!" I mean, I had no idea who he was even talking about, and because I hadn't, I had no concept of Dorothy Parker, like a lot of young people these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I maybe knew enough to quote some of those little quips, but probably would quote them wrong. But you know, I didn't. That was. That was all I knew. Dorothy Parker, to clarify for our listeners who may be younger and don't know. That's true. There's no shame. She was a writer, a wit, a... Book review, book play reviewer. review, mm-hmm. short story writer. And Wasn't she the only woman at the Algonquin Round Table? Well, there was Edna Ferber. Oh, that's true. But, but she was one of the women. At yeah, the and yeah. she Algonquin is one of the Round founders Table. of what was called eventually the Algonquin Round Table right. uh, yeah. at yeah. the Algonquin Hotel, right. where groups of cognoscenti and writers yeah. and and actors would meet. Yeah, and they would have lunch mm-hmm. uh, once a, and drinks every day and or many drinks many times a week and. Uh, many yeah. drinks yeah. yeah and they would just review the world and right. some of the great quips that we know of came out of those right luncheons right uh, and Dorothy Parker uh, became quite famous sure. for, for coining very many phrases such as when asked to use the word horticulture she famously <laughs> said you can lead a whore to culture but you can't make her think <laughs> Although it could be a he too nowadays, right? True, true. Didn't she do a review of Catherine Hepburn where she said she ran the gamut of emotions from A to B? Yeah, right. All the way from A to B, <laughs> yeah. I think she said. Yeah. So you got interested in uh, Dorothy Parker because Stephen Walker said you you should you and that should is, play that's also Dorothy Parker very somewhere. perfectly Dorothy Parker. But what I discovered about Dorothy Parker in reading her stories was that she was for as well known as she was for her wisecracking and her kind of off the cuff wit and her profanity sometimes. I mean, there was one, one quote where when she was um, referring to her abortions that she had had, that that's what she got for putting all of her eggs in one bastard. Uh, uh, but so, but there was, there, there was a revelatory, to me, side of her and her short stories, which are monologues, some of them. You can find a telephone call, the garter sentiment. They're sort of her musings in her head, and they, they make perfectly theatrical monologues. I'd never felt so drawn to any such literature at that point. I mean, I was still young enough that I hadn't really done a lot of plays. I hadn't done any Tennessee Williams at that point. I mean, I'd read these plays, but it, it, it was there was something about her, and it really did feel like she was speaking directly to me. And so over the course of the next 20-some years... If there was a chance, I would do a reading of a telephone call or, like I said, some of the other stories, just a little one or sentiment. And that's what I'll be doing tomorrow night at the uh, museum. A collection. A couple of other little-known facts about Dorothy Parker. 
when she died, she left her entire estate to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. That's true. And when he passed, he passed it on to the NAACP. That's so right. have you had to jump through a number of hoops in order to get the rights, the opportunity to do this? Not for many. No, they've been incredibly generous. I mean, I've reached out to them and they have made it very easy for me to to do these in different forms. I mean, there was there have been forms where it's like a one-night thing, mm. just a fundraiser, or though I will say I am making a donation to the NAACP just on my own. Oh, good from for you. From the stipend, because that's the thing to do, and that's a cool thing to do. Didn't you do a, an extended run of but, this in New York? But right, I did an extended run of this at the Soho Play house uh, produced by Michael Shannon. The great Michael Shannon. The great mm-hmm. Michael Shannon. You can see him everywhere right now. If you turn <laughs> on your television, right. you will see him everywhere. Mm-hmm. But he produced uh, a version that I did in New York, which felt like, okay, now I'm doing Dorothy Parker in New York City. It was a tiny little speakeasy. I mean, it was a perfect little place for it. And people were like this far away from me. It was, I think a woman actually got hit in the head with a chair when I had to move a chair <laughs> to a certain spot. I think she, uh, or something happened with a chair and a woman, I, you know, but uh, for those extended runs, yes, they, you know, they asked for a, a, a small donation, but it's really not, yeah. not much. So they've been very generous with, with that. Other facts about Dorothy Parker. She was nominated for a couple of Academy Awards, mm-hmm. oh. uh, one in which she was a co-writer on the original screenplay of A Star is Born. Yep. Oh, that's right. Yep. Frederick yeah. March and yeah. Janet Gaynor. Where does this title, Excuse My Dust, come from? That is something she requested possibly be on her tombstone. That or uh, <laughs> This One's On Me. <laughs> and the funny thing about that, too, she left her the, the rights to her estate to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., but Lillian Hellman was the executrix of her estate and of her ashes when she was cremated. Mm. I think it was up to Lillian Hellman to figure out where they were to be interred and all that. Lillian Hellman and Dorothy Parker, by the end, had reached a pretty uh, combative relationship. There were a lot of resentment there, and so for whatever reason, Lillian Hellman didn't do anything with Dorothy Parker's ashes, and they stayed in the office of a New York attorney until 1985. And she died what year? 70-something. Oh, so 15 years. Yeah, just sitting in a drawer. Just sitting in a drawer, her remains, her dust were just sitting in a drawer. And I think she would have loved that. It would be <laughs> the most true. hilarious ending. I don't know if this was a Dorothy Parker quote or not. It might have been Luella Parsons or something. If you don't have anything nice to say about someone, come sit next to me. <laughs> I've heard that. I don't know if that's her, but <laughs> I think it is. I'm not sure, yeah. but it sounds yeah. like her. If she oh, would have said it if she thought of it. <laughs> she, yeah, she would have. Yes, she would have. <laughs> I've asked this of a number of our guests, and uh, it's... Kind of an interesting question, a little crazy question. If you could get lost in any city in the world, what, what city might you like to just get lost in and just wander and discover? That's a good question. City. Maybe a city like Seattle or Portland. I haven't been on the really? that side of the country much. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to be lost in New York City. I wouldn't want to be lost in <laughs> Chicago. I wouldn't want to be lost. I mean, I wouldn't want to be lost anywhere where I wouldn't necessarily be able to communicate. I wouldn't want to be lost in, like, a jungle situation. So, yeah. yeah I, I don't either. like being lost either because it's very easy for me to get lost. I could get mm. lost leaving this apartment. Mm. So being lost <laughs> isn't something. I try to avoid being lost You've constantly. been lost numerous I've times. been lost my whole life. I need to give a plug here, non sequitur, Frank, to a group that we've talked about before. I'm not sure I've talked about it with you, Frank, but they are called the Therapy Players. They are Mm -hmm. Chicago's premier all-psychotherapist comedy improv troupe. Oh, wow. Here's a photograph of them. They look look a little crazy, don't they? Oh, boy. Well, they do a series of shows, usually in the summer, I guess the winter and spring months are busy for psychotherapists, and the summers oh, yeah. are, are less. People cancel their appointments, and well, they're happier when it's like the they don't have the, out. Uh, they don't. the affect disorder of the whatever that is. They don't have in right. the summer. Where well, they're going to appear nearby at the Skokie Theater on Saturday, June sixteenth. They're also going to be in uh, Rogers Park, which is just south of here, on Saturday, July fourteenth. I think we need to make arrangements to go to the uh, yeah. psychotherapist <laughs> comedy improv troupe. Hey, and Maybe, see what they're yeah. all about. I'll be interested in what, what uh, suggestions they get from the audience. Yes. <laughs> right. 
That sounds fascinating. I hear bipolar and <laughs> yeah. mental institution. Okay, go. Let's go. Are there any roles that you're dying to play, Jennifer, that you haven't played already? Um, Something on your wish list? I, w- I would like to play Lady M sometime. Mm. You know? I don't know. Mm. It sounds a little cliche, but I would. I'd well, like, not everybody would like to, so yeah, I, I'd, I'd, I think yeah. that's... Um, I'd like to unsex myself, throw myself <laughs> in, and sell myself to the, the demons of murder. I mean, I'm yeah, built for that. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. Do you have a particular acting style or technique, I should say, that's a better word, that you kind of apply or that you buy into? Um, you know, Method or Stanislavski. You know, we just lost a, a great acting teacher named Harold Guskin, who taught yes. at Illinois Wesleyan uh, really? for a while. I remember uh, that, yeah. He wrote a book called How to Stop Acting. Yeah, I have that book. How, do yeah, you? Yeah. yeah, I think I read half of it. And then I stopped acting. <laughs> and then I stopped reading. No, I... Uh, Maybe that's the way to do it. I have yeah. a hard time, like, applying theory. And, and, and this is absolutely not throwing shade on anybody who like adheres to a technique because I've never really found a technique that I, I just, I don't know that what I have is a technique. I, I, I read the play as many times as I can. I memorize as soon as I can. And then I just try to be lithe with the words. And this has just come from years of experience. And so maybe my technique is my own cobbled together technique of having the script so fully cemented in my brain that I can play with the words as opposed to really having to think about what comes next. The danger sometimes is getting too caught up in making right or wrong choices. Having the ability to be so free in a scene and know the scene so well and know the script so well that surprises can happen. I love being surprised by myself on stage when you can let your brain go and when everything else can kind of come through. I I really do believe that the writer is God and that completely committing to the sanctity of the text is important, especially when you're dealing with people like Tennessee Williams and Albie. And I'm just not a fan of finger painting with words. You know what I mean? Like it's specific. Uh They put these in order for a reason. And so you don't just sort of improv scenes. You go definitely with what's written. Absolutely. That's one way to get on my B list. I'll tell you that. Just don't don't mess around with words. I I think that a lot of uh, Harold Guskin's theory sunk in because that's Mm. really exactly what he was talking about. He was all about letting the script speak for you. Mm. Know the words so well that it just gives you freedom and your instincts take over. Right. And the words will Mm. lead you to the right Right. direction, the right decision-making, the right answers, the right emotion. Right. That sounds very much like what you're speaking about. Well, dang about. it, I should have written that book. <laughs> you can I, write the it, sequel. He's it, now hey, dead. Oh, that's what, hey, there you go. It's not What's too it? late. I have to mention something else, uh, Frank. I think I've told you that we saw this play on Broadway a couple of seasons ago. Well, it's season and a half ago. The play that goes wrong. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Did you see that I show? Lo- I've seen it twice. Loved I saw it. it once in London, and I saw it once in New York. Yeah, won the Tony oh. Award for Best Set Design last year. Well, the play that goes wrong is closing this summer. Uh-huh. After, oh, something like 585 performances yeah, yeah. and some previews, it'll close on August 26th. The good news is that the producers, uh, led by Kevin McCollum and the uh, filmmaker J.J. Abrams, you knew J.J. Abrams was involved in this production, that it would be beginning a tour in Pittsburgh starting in September. So I bet it's going to come through Chicago here. I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) And I highly recommend going to see this if you want to laugh for two straight hours. It is very funny. If you can't wait until the tour comes, there are two productions online you can see. The original production was called Peter Pan That Goes Wrong. That was the first one they did where people are flying into walls (laughs) and all kinds of mayhem happening. And that's on YouTube, fully realized. Oh, wow. And last Christmas, they did A Christmas Carol That Goes Wrong. And that is also online. And it's about guys playing Scrooge, but somebody else who's playing like Marley or something, one 
wanted the role of Scrooge, so he does everything he can to screw the guy <laughs> who is trying to play Scrooge. So those two are. Available. I know a couple of actual actors <laughs> oh, in yeah. Chicago oh, I'm sure we all. who are exactly sure. that. Yeah, murder at Moorstone Manor or something. They're trying it to put on the this play murder that mystery. they're doing. Yes, it's a community theater. It is production. Community, yeah, community theater production. The, the director who comes out at the beginning is hilarious. Yeah, he is. He said we have a bigger budget this year. Last year we only we had to do a production called Cat. Um, whereas this year we could do the whole murder yes. at Moorstone. <laughs> yes. Jennifer, we haven't done this in a while, but we, we sometimes play a little parlor game Ooh. called Chat Pack. Now, these are just questions that are of general nature and okay. are revealing of personality sometimes, okay, hopefully. hopefully. We'll all play okay. uh, so you don't have to feel isolated. Okay, Thank you. Uh, I don't know what these questions are. They were chosen at random for us today. So I'm going to ask you, if you're game... I'm totally game. ...to uh, pull one of these questions and read it for us. Okay. If you could take any job for just one month, what job would you like to have? Assume that you would have the skills and knowledge to perform adequately. For one month, what job would you like to have? Porn star. <laughs> well, it's All just right. a month. Frank just kicking it off. It's with, just a month. I you know, could probably sure. deal I, I with should it. mention that if you, you wanted, only squeeze one I should or two mention that if you yeah. wanted to do some research on that, Frank, <laughs> yes. Stormy Daniels is appearing at the Admiral Theater here, um, which is a notorious strip club. Adult. And that is yeah. true, right? She, she really is. is. Yeah, That's amazing. She is. She'll be live on stage June 14th, 15th, and 16th. Uh, three well, full not days. Not be in the country. But you're yes. you're going to be away, but I, 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 I may have to take a field trip on our behalf. Portable and if you can stuff. get some uh, pointers from my Porn Star Month, I would appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. I'll, I'll write down some tips. She wouldn't be my first choice, else, but... but. <laughs> yes, I will sit there taking notes okay, while good. it's going on. Good. I think that's amazing. I totally want to see you Stormy. Yeah. 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 Jennifer, how about you? Is there a job that you would like to do for a month? No, no restrictions. I'm going to be so sappy right now, and I would say that I would like for just a month to be uh, a mother. Or, you know what, to go and just hold babies in India. I'd do that. You've done volunteer. some nannying. I'm a nanny. You? I love yeah. kids. I yeah. just I couldn't bear to bring them into my life. God knows, There's but I love to visit them and give them all I all of the attention and, and energy that I have. I like indulging children, but I wouldn't want to do it for more than a month. Does that count? That's yeah, an totally excellent counts. answer. Yeah. Uh, I mean, because I'd sure. like to say like motorcycle repairman or something, but like that's not honest. I like I do hey, a that's my answer. Oh, shoot, <laughs> damn it. Shoot. Well, hiatus. that's the beauty of this question. It's not asking exactly you to do right. it for the rest Correct. of your life. It's right. just asking for a short period of time. Right. I think 30 days uh, is, is a great period of time. And yeah, that's probably all my porn career would last. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking even if I wanted to do it longer, I don't think I could. Anyway, Gary, your turn. <laughs> well, I think I'd like to be a Major League Baseball player for a month. Sure. Oh. Yeah. N- not on the Cincinnati Reds. But on a decent team. <laughs> well, I, they're playing the Cubs today, so I'm not sure who yeah, won. Yeah, that's true. I think I would enjoy doing that for a month. And, of course, I would have the skills to be able to do it. No, that's, it said you have the skills. The See, now there, there's a point. So my skill set already allows me to do the job that I chose. So if yeah. I was going to say something else... I would love to be a Beyonce-level musical star, Ah. which would mean going with that would be the attendant need to get up and do the grind and be a rock star, because that's a whole skill set in itself. And then, of course, like the dancing and the singing. But you supposedly would have the skills But if you have no, so if I had that, so I would look at it as a month of being able to live in in somebody else's skin. So I kind of take back my first sappy answer. No, you can't take it back, but (laughs) But you can can have two answers. Okay, you could be a nanny by day. Day. Ooh, nanny by day <laughs> and Beyonce at and, night. And Beyonce at night. We're a very liberal-minded democratic okay. program. Right. Cool. Let's play one more. Okay. When people find out what you do for a living, what is the most typical question that they are likely to ask you regarding your job? I can answer that right away. Yeah. Being a teacher, they're always, God, you get summers off. What's it like having summers off? <laughs> What's it like having summers yeah, off? Yeah, it's like nothing, because I was taught summer school. So, <laughs> And you work like a fiend when you are working during the school year. So sometimes sure. the teachers who actually do take a summer off just sort of sit there catatonic for two months. Right, right. But that's always the question that was asked. Yeah. 
What, what about you, Jennifer? Do people... Always ask, how do you learn all those lines? <laughs> yeah, right. That is the everyone. Even my, my beautiful grandpa, may, him, may he rest in peace, after a show he saw, he literally he just, how can you, how did you memorize all those lines? <laughs> yeah. And I always say, well, there's just really nothing else in there. I'm so fully packed with these monologues or shows or whatever audition pieces that you're working on it, it goes in but don't ask me to tell you where we are because i probably won't know <laughs> or what direction we're facing i'm just uh, in a swirl of words and emotions constantly well in my day job i work for a symphony orchestra oh. here in chicago and most people don't actually have a question they usually say I love classical music, as if uh-huh. I, I, I care whether they do or not. Right. Yeah. It's usually the comment that they make to me, and then they don't usually ask me, well, what instrument do you play? Right. Although I've been asked that question. I'm not in the orchestra. <laughs> I, just, I just work for the orchestra. I'm not an actual doctor. I just play one right, right. on the sidelines. Right. Jennifer, we finish our podcasts every week in the usual manner, and, and this week is, is no exception. We have a segment we call The Kiss of Death. <laughs> now, this is a celebration of someone who has just passed mm-hmm. recently, either famous, not famous, just an ordinary person or a megastar or something, and, and we just like to celebrate their life. Life and what they brought to us. Yeah. Today we're going to talk a little bit about Ann V. Coates. Do you know who Ann V. Coates is? You're going to know Sounds this, Frank. Familiar, yeah. Your uh, partner, your husband, Dan, is a filmmaker. Yes, he is. He works pretty much only in digital, right? Yeah, that's what, what he teaches in the digital cinema department at DePaul. Does he do his own editing? He works with the editor, but he always has an editor who knows more of the technical stuff than he does. Very, very wise, I think, because you need that collaboration. Ann V. Coates, an English surgical nurse who forsook her calling to perform surgery on some of the best-known motion pictures of the 20th century. Mm. One of the most celebrated film editors of her era, Miss Coates, won an Oscar for her work on my favorite film, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, by David Lean, starring, of course, Peter O'Toole. Can you imagine a job she once said, where you get paid to look into the eyes of a George Clooney and a Peter O'Toole. Uh, <laughs> well, nice work if you can get yeah, it. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's nice work. And there's a lot of eye shots of Peter O'Toole in <laughs> that is. film, for sure. Are you uh, familiar with uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Jennifer? Yes. Do you like that yeah, movie? Yeah, I do. It's been yeah. years since I've seen it. But oh, yes. I'll loan you one of my copies. <laughs> I've got, I've got yeah. dozens in all yeah. kinds of formats and all kinds of resolutions. I should mention, by the way, that this is uh, excerpted from the New York Times by my absolute favorite writer of obituaries, uh, Marguerite Fox. She's been a past guest on this show. Mm. We went to interview her at the New York Times in New York. This might have been from the archives because Ann V. Coates was 92. Wow. So she might have done this in advance. (laughs) She says, uh, Marguerite says that the film editor's craft is often called the invisible art but it is one of the most vital ingredients in the alchemy of filmmaking. It is the editor as much as or more than anyone else who wields rigorous control over the passage of on-screen time, for instance, making thousands of decisions uh, that accord a picture its pace and its rhythm. One of the most celebrated editing moments in the world uh, occurs in Lawrence of Arabia. It involves an on-screen juxtaposition of the kind known as a match cut, where the cutting highlights affinities between two successive images. Well, here's the scene. It takes place very early in the movie. T.E. Lawrence, played by Peter O'Toole, is talking to an English diplomat, played by Claude Rains, of all people. And he lights Claude Rains' cigarette with a match. And he's got this trick where he rolls up his sleeves and he lets the match burn down to his fingertip before snuffing it out. In this particular cut... He watches the match burn down, and there's a nice close-up on his face in the match. And just as it gets to his fingertips, he blows it out with a whew. And the jump cut happens to a desert scene at sunrise with the burning sands. Yeah. Uh. In that single cut is contained the passage of time, a journey through space, and, well, as Marguerite calls it, a delicious visual pun, the literal match cut. Mm. And that's probably something the editor came up with as opposed to a director because she would have all the footage going like, oh, I could do this right here and then put this in right after it. I'm sure the director loved it, but it probably was her idea. The director, Steven Spielberg, has described that cut as the transition that blew me away when he first saw that film as a youth. 
Anne V. Coates was born in 1925. She had, she recalled, an overprotected upbringing in an impeccably bourgeois family. <laughs> One of my first memories was watching the parlor maid iron the London Times so there were no crinkles in it before wow. my father read it, she wow. said. <laughs> they do that in the royal palace. I've seen something on, I don't know if it was Downton Abbey yeah, or something, where they right. were ironing the newspaper for You know, those programs someone. that all the people at the wedding yesterday had, the uh, royal wedding, oh. those were really neat. They looked like they were ironed. Iron, I hmm. yeah. I'll try ironing my papers. As a teenager, that. Anne was smitten by cinema after seeing Wuthering Heights, mm-hmm. the oh. 1939 film starring uh, Merle Oberon and Laurence Olivier. She was determined to have a career in motion pictures, but she would first have to overcome the objections of her uncle, Well, this is where it all comes to a full circle. He was the eminent English film producer, J. Arthur Rank. He was a devoutly religious man, and he was determined to protect her from the flesh pots of cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like my family when I was deciding to go into the theater. They wanted to protect me from the flesh. No. (laughs) No. Did you have any parental objections to your going into a, no, a life in the theater, not Jennifer? At all. Not at all. They've been so fully supportive. They see everything. They'll drive from Iowa. They they went to Kansas City. They've gone to New York to see whatever. Oh, great. I do. I'm very, very blessed with very supportive. You are. That's fantastic. Yeah. And said that he thought, this is uh, J. Arthur Rank, her uncle, he thought I was going in for the glamour and to have affairs with actors. <laughs> That's why most people do it. She added, it did not happen, but some years later on it did. (laughs) (laughs) Good for her. Instead, she went into nursing, working in a plastic surgery center, which specialized in rebuilding the faces of servicemen badly wounded in the war. Wow. When the work became too harrowing to sustain, Miss Coates vowed to find a way to make a career in cinema. She would need to overcome not only her family's resistance, but also the fact that the industry had very few job openings for women at that time. Mm-hmm. And her yeah. uncle relented enough to find her a job with a religious film arm of his company, which huh. made devotional pictures for churches. Lovely. He um, thought, well, that'll cool her down. Yeah. Miss Coates recalled, it didn't work. <laughs> she sounds like a fiery, fiery she does. lady. Yeah. After her apprenticeship there, she caught on as a cutting room assistant at Pinewood Studios. Early films to which she contributed included The Red Shoes. Mm. Lovely movie. Oh, wow. Her other Oscar nominations were for Beckett in 1964, mm-hmm. the uh, again Peter O'Toole and yeah. Richard Burton vehicle, The Elephant Man in 1980, In the Line of Fire in 93, and Out of Sight in 98. She was mm. awarded an honorary Oscar in 2016. Uh, among her other film credits, The Pickwick Papers, Murder on the Orient Express from 1974, and Aaron Brockovich mm. in oh. 2000. Miss Coates makes a cameo appearance as one of Howard Hughes's film editors in the 2004 biopic *The Aviator*. Oh, wow! I'm ah. going to have to rewatch yeah. that yeah. and take Check a look for out. her. Yeah. Miss Coates, uh, who worked into her 90s, uh, one of her last credits was *Fifty Shades of Grey*. Oh no! Oh. I bet oh. she loved working on well, that movie at, at 90. She probably got paid a lot. Yeah. She became skilled in digital editing, which became increasingly dominant in her craft. But though she grew to appreciate its capabilities, she said she sometimes missed the lovely magic, she said, of taking a strip of celluloid in her white-gloved fingers and holding it up to the light. Mm. Mm -hmm. Ann V. Coates, admired editor of acclaimed movies, dies at 92. I do have a kind of a funny Lawrence of Arabia story, which tells where some of the millennials are these days. When I taught a film class, students had to watch one film a week outside of class from the AFI's American Film Institute's 100 Greatest Movies of All Time. Lawrence of Arabia was in there. So being in the class, we talk about what people saw. And so this one young lady had seen Lawrence of Arabia. And so I said, what did you think? She goes, I didn't care for it. Really? Did you watch it on a big screen? She goes, no, I watched it on my phone. She watched Lawrence of freaking Arabia <laughs> on her phone. Oh. So. No. <laughs> uh-huh. Miss Coates would just be rolling and definitely. There, there's something sacrilegious about that. <laughs> definitely was. Well, I let her know that. Oh. <laughs> My usual shameless plug, Frank, if you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you lively conversation about the arts and scintillating guests like Jennifer Engstrom, uh, you can go to our website at www.booth-one.com. 
Click on the donate button. It's quick, it's easy, it's fully tax deductible under our 501c3 status as a nonprofit entity, and any contribution would be greatly appreciated. Well, thank you to our guest, Jennifer Engstrom. You are so welcome. And best of luck with your already outstanding career as an actress. Uh, I'm looking so forward to tomorrow night to see your Dorothy Parker. Thank you. And uh, we will excuse your dust. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of it. We so appreciate you taking the time to uh, join us today. Visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes, more information about our programs, and of course your hosts. For Booth One, this is Gary Zabinski. And Frank Taranjo. Saying so long and keep listening.